All right, well, good evening and welcome to GNCC Church. I'm Chuck Leemaster with Team Faith, and, and genuinely, it's a privilege to be here. I'm blessed. Thank you guys for showing up and, and being here and being early and on time. A good-looking crowd out here tonight, so really, really blessed. Lord, thanks a lot for today. I pray that you bless the next few minutes here and just open our hearts and our minds. May we understand what you're trying to communicate with us and um, give me the words that I'll communicate accurately what you put on my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll be honest with you, church. The past week and a half, past two weeks, since we met at Big Buck, it has been a real struggle to dig into the Word and see what God has for me to share with you tonight. Because I was just consumed with what was going on over in Ukraine. I mean, the news was on, and I get in my truck, XM radio was on. It's not that I was obsessed with it. I was just so concerned with what was going on there. I could not get my mind, my thoughts, my emotions away from that. And so I'm praying the whole time, God, what do you want me to share? What, what am I supposed This is what's happening in the world, and it's really concerning. It's, it's really, really troubling me. And that's what was on my heart. You guys, uh, you've, you've all seen American Sniper, right? The, the movie American Sniper. Chris Kyle, he wrote a book before he was murdered. Uh, he was one of the most successful snipers in all of American history. Decorated war soldier from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, they turned his book into a movie. They took some poetic licenses, but it was a good movie. And in one of the opening scenes there, there's a schoolyard fight with some middle school age kids. And then they cut to the dining room table that evening. And it's Chris Kyle and his brother, mom and dad, sitting around the table. And his dad is a real hard-nosed, tough Texas guy. And he says, boys, let me tell you something. There are three types of people in this world. There are sheep, there are wolves, and there are sheepdogs. And the sheep can't help themselves. That's just what they do. And then there are wolves, and they are the predators. And God help me, boys. And he takes his belt off, and he slams it on the table. God help me if you're one of them. I will tan your hide or something to that effect. And his wife gasps and the eyes get real big. And he says, and then there's the sheepdogs. And they're the ones that watch over and protect the flock. Is that what was happening today? And Chris Kyle, the, the little boy, nods his head and his dad says, now you know who you are. It's just this chilling moment. Like, I love that part of the movie because that's where I find my heart, especially since 2006 when I surrendered and said, God, I'm all yours. I remember when I was younger, I joined the Army. I, I signed up for infantry. Like, I'm going to run through, through the mud, throw grenades, shoot guns, whatever, man. Put me on the front lines. That's always been my heart. But in 2006 when I said, God, I'm all in, I have really had a hard time watching injustice unfold in front of my eyes. I mean, it's hard. Sometimes at the track, it's really hard when I see a dad cussing his little kid on the 50 track. And I've stepped in before, and uh, I will step in, absolutely. And so when I see Putin moving on Ukraine, I'm like screaming at the TV, it doesn't have to be this way. And yet it is this way. And I know you guys have that heart too. Proverbs says, um, Proverbs says that uh, it's, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. In this case, it's not really within my power to act. But the last year or so, we've been coming to GNCC Church, we've been talking about prophecy a lot. And so that's kind of in the back of my mind too, as I'm watching the TV unfold, Russia's making headlines, I'm like, hey, is this, is this in the Bible? Like, one, number one, I want to do something, but secondly, like, is this, is this something that I should be aware of? So tonight, what do we know and what do we do with the situation that's happening right in front of our 
right in front of our eyes. And as always, we want to be careful that we insert the Bible into our lives, not insert the Bible, us into the Bible. Okay, so for example, if I was alive and preaching back in 1941, when Hitler was doing all of his atrocities, I'm sure that I would have been like, it's the end of the world, end time is here, look at this, uh, prophecy is coming true in front of our very eyes. Problem is, is that back in the 19, early 1940s, there was no nation of Israel. All right, and the nation of Israel, when you read prophecy, you find out that's pretty important end times kind of stuff. And there was no nation of Israel until 1948. The nation of Israel hadn't existed since 70 AD. So missing the nation of Israel in the in the 1940s. So you got to be really careful that you accurately interpret what you're reading. Since 1948, Israel became a nation. 1967, the Six Day War happened. And you can compare that with Psalm 83. The war that's listed in Psalm 83 mirrors right up with the Six-Day War. The next thing on our timeline, and there actually isn't a timeline. Instead, what we have are 66 different books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 different years. And we put the pieces together. And it's important for us to, to know what this says so that when it happens, as it happens, we recognize it. But it seems like the next thing that we're looking for is the Gog-Magog War that's talked about in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And this war is when armies from the north will come down, they'll see Israel, and they'll, they'll come down, they'll invade Israel to seize spoil and to take away plunder. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, it doesn't take a genius to pull out a map and say, okay, Israel's here, the armies of the extreme north would be, oh, that's Russia. Right there, you got Turkey and then you got Russia. But why would Russia ever want to invade Israel? Well, now you can kind of see this little roadmap starting to form because all we're talking about in the news today is natural gas. Russia supplies natural gas to, to all of Europe. And we got to quit buying Russian gas. What if, what if Israel were to step up to the European Union and say, hey, don't buy gas from that evil Putin guy. Buy it from us. 2009, we discovered natural gas, the Tamar Reserve out in the Mediterranean Sea, it's Israeli territory. They've been drilling, they've been building pipelines. Israel today could turn on the spigot and they could supply all of Europe with their gas for the next 100 years, I think. What if Israel said, hey, we'll supply your gas. Would that be the hook in the jaw to bring the armies of the north down to, to Israel to seize spoil and to carry off plunder? See, that is speculation. That is exactly inserting us into the Bible. And let me tell you this, if I can dream it up, it ain't gonna happen, <laughs> okay? I mean, it, it possibly could. We could see that happen, but that's not how we interpret prophecy. Instead, what we did two weeks ago at Big Buck was we took a look at, hey, what is the state of our country? I am heartbroken for where we're heading as a country. Uh, I, I know that God is gonna judge this nation if we don't turn from our evil ways. There was a guy who was in a very similar situation. Jeremiah was in a similar situation. How did he handle that? So we, we explored how you were created on purpose and for a purpose. You are to influence them. Don't let them influence you. Tonight, we're going to take a similar road trip through the Bible and, uh, and, and look at a situation where some people were in a similar situation where they saw an evil empire encroaching on innocent people. Except their situation was far, far worse, worse than what we're seeing today. We're going to go to the New Testament tonight. But in order to get there, we got to do a little bit of, uh, of, of background. And if you've been coming to these chapel services for a couple of years, this will probably be review for you. But what do you do when the times get tough? When you get a little frustrated, you always go back to the basics, right? So elbows up, scoot forward on the tank, let's dig into it. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is God talking to Satan. Satan, when he was a, a, a serpent, he came down, he tempted Adam and Eve. Eve ate the fruit, she gave it to her husband. The curse of sin came on the world. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan, you're going to pay for what you did today. Her offspring, her descendants, you're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. So right there is our first prophecy of a coming Messiah. Now, how does God fulfill that promise in Genesis 3.15? He comes to a guy named Abram. And it's the Abrahamic covenant. It says, Abram, I'm going to do a thing through you. The whole world's going to be blessed. You're going to be a father of a great nation. Lots of people, lots of land. The whole world's going to be blessed through, through your descendants, right? Abraham had a son who had two sons, who had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. As the nation grew and expanded, leaders were, were risen up. Prophets were risen up. Judges and kings. And all the, a lot of these different leaders, they wrote different books, what we call books of the Old Testament. In those books of the Old Testament, they had references to a coming Messiah, a conquering king, a hero who was going to set things right, all relating back to that Genesis 3.15 promise. The thing is, the nation of Israel didn't want... i got something flying around me. Keep trying to fly in my mouth here. The nation of Israel didn't want anything to do with those prophecies. There's very little concern in the Old Testament about all those Old Testament prophecies. It's not until we come to the New Testament that all of a sudden those Old Testament prophecies have some meaning. Instead, it seemed like the Old Testament Israelites, they just kind of did whatever they wanted to do. They sacrificed to whoever they wanted to sacrifice. They served whoever they wanted to serve. And then Jeremiah comes along and he says, hey, if we don't shape up, we're going to go into captivity. That captivity will last 70 years, which is exactly how long it happened. The Babylonians marched into, into Jerusalem, took captives, took them all away under Babylonian rule. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. The Persian king Cyrus allowed the Israelites to come back into Jerusalem. And during that time, you got Ezra and Nehemiah. You got a couple of the minor prophets. The last book of the Old Testament that was written is uh, uh, Malachi. And then the canon of the Old Testament closed. And there's silence. It's called God's silence for 400 years. There are no prophetic writings. There are no visions. There's no speeches. We don't hear anything from God. But time marches on. The Persians are defeated by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquers what we know as the, as the Israeli territory. And then Alexander the Great, he dies. His kingdom goes four different ways to four different generals, which ironically is exactly what Daniel 8 verse 8 says is going to happen, which is, which is how prophecy works. Like, you can't predict this stuff in advance, but when it happens, you're like, wow, God knew all along. And it's a confirmation that God is who he says that he is. So Alexander the Great dies. The Greeks, by the time the New Testament opens, it's not the Greeks anymore. It is the Romans, right? Caesar Augustus makes a decree that everyone must go to his hometown for this census. That's Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. We all know Caesar Augustus. That's the Roman Caesar. As the New Testament opens, it's a completely different story. It's like going to a play, seeing the screen, the, the curtain close. It opens again after intermission. And now all of a sudden, we've got a thriving marketplace. We've got Caesar Augustus, we've got Roman centurions, we've got toll roads, we've got taxes, we've got tax collectors, corrupt tax collectors. We've got a different religious order, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, stuff that we haven't heard about in the Old Testament. We've got zealots, 
people that are just so angry at the Roman occupation that they just want to rise up and overthrow Rome. And so we've got this, this whole seething undercurrent as we open the pages of the New Testament. 400 years of silence. And then a prophecy happens. A prophecy that had been, uh, had been spoken hundreds of years before actually comes true. And it's in obscurity. It's not really caught at first. This is Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Who comes on the scene? But John the baptizer. John the Baptist. Covered in, he's got clothes of uh, camel's hair. He eats locusts with wild honey because how else would you eat a wild locust, right? So he's he's crazy guy out in the wilderness. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and people are coming to him by the hundreds and they're getting baptized and he gets the religious leader's attention. And the religious leaders come out there and they're like, Hey, John, what is this all about? Are you, are you the Christ? Are you the guy that we're looking for? And John says, and this is from the, the book of John, verse chapter 1, 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He goes on to say, Hey, guys, I'm just paving the way here. But the one who comes after me, he's going to have a winnowing fork. I'm baptizing with water. He's going to baptize with fire. He's going to be the conquering hero. And automatically, it sets off those thoughts of the prophecy coming true. Now, what did that prophecy, what were those prophecies all about? Well, here, I'll show you real quick. Genesis starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The obedience of the nations, plural, shall be his. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's 2 Samuel verse chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Zechariah, behold, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, riding on a donkey. We'll, 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 we'll overlook that. The, the Israelis are looking for that conquering king, the hero, the prophesied one. And John the baptizer comes on the scene and says, he's coming, he's coming with a baptism of fire. And then what happens? Jesus comes on the scene. What's the first thing that Jesus does? He turns water into wine, right? Pretty cool. The next thing he does, all of a sudden, there's rumors going out all through the land that, man, this guy, Jesus, he's healing people. The lame are able to walk. The deaf are able to, to hear. The blind are able to see. Hey, Isaiah said, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped? And oh, by the way, didn't Isaiah also say that the coming Messiah would be born of a virgin? Didn't Micah say that he'd be born in Bethlehem? Didn't Hosea say, out of Egypt I will call my son? And didn't, didn't Jesus and his family have to flee to Egypt? And then didn't Isaiah say, a great light will shine in Galilee? And where are we in Galilee? Man, there's this long checklist. And this guy is like hitting all of these checks. What's going to be next? Conquering hero. You remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people with two loaves, or five loaves and two fish? He's out preaching. He preaches way longer than me because people got really hungry, and nobody brought any food. Finally, this little boy had a lunch. His mom packed him five loaves and two fish. Jesus takes it. He breaks it. He prays for it. Feeds everybody. And the people are amazed. And here's what John records about that story. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
realizing that they were going to force him to check that final box, conquering hero, he withdrew by himself. That night is the night that he walks on the water, goes to the other side of the lake. Though That next morning, the crowd wakes up. Where's Jesus? We're hungry. We could use some breakfast. Jesus nowhere to be found. They finally, they go around the lake. They find Jesus. They're like, how'd you get here? Well, never mind. Feed us. And here's Jesus' response. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. To which the crowd said, that's gross. <laughs> You're weird. And they deserted him. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, you want to leave too? To which Peter, of all people, Peter replied. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Peter says, we don't really understand you, but you are the prophesied one. Of that, we are sure. Towards the end of Jesus' life, as the crucifixion is drawing close, Jesus keeps making mention that he's going to die and then be raised again on the third day. Peter finally has enough of it, and he pulls Jesus aside. He's like, Jesus, you got to quit talking crazy like that because you're not, trust me, you're not going to die. And you're kind of freaking out the other disciples who aren't as mature as me. I'm kind of ad-libbing there. But, but, but Peter's like, you got to shut up. To which Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, and shuts him down harshly. Now, i got to stick up for Peter here. Because in all those prophecies of the Old Testament, talking about the coming Messiah, the conquering hero, the one who would be born of a virgin, uh, the one who was born in Bethlehem, makes uh, the lame walk, there's not one single prophecy that that guy is going to die or be raised back to life. There's an obscure prophecy that David mentions in the Psalms about you will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave, but how could you possibly interpret that one? However, with the lens of history, we see exactly what that means. Matter of fact, with the lens of history, we see what God meant back in Genesis 3.15. You will bruise His heel. The offspring of Eve, you're going to bruise His heel. 1968 there was an archaeological dig outside of Jerusalem. And they're digging and they discovered an ossuary, a bone box, which is the custom of the first century was that when someone would die, they would get the, the proper burial was to put them in a tomb, like Jesus was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And then on the one year anniversary, they would go into that tomb. And by this time, the body had completely decomposed. All that was left was bones. They would scrape up the bones and they would put them in a bone box, an ossuary. And then they would take that and they would put that into a crypt or a vault, a filing cabinet for dead bones. 1968, they dig up this ossuary box on the, on the lid. It's inscribed... Johohanan, son of Hagokal. I'm sure I butchered those names. They open the lid of Johohanan's ossuary box, and inside are his bones. They find the heel, one of his heel bones still has a nail sticking in the heel bone. It reinterpreted what we know of Roman crucifixion. You see, nobody that, that uh, was crucified by the Romans ever got a burial. This was a very rare find because to the Romans, if you were crucified, you were a scum of the earth, common criminal, you don't get a burial. That's why it was so significant that Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man, had to actually go to Pilate to ask permission to take the body of Jesus and give him the burial and put him in the tomb. 
And so this is a rare find to find this guy who had actually been crucified. The nail sticking out the side of his heel bone reinterpreted what we know of the crucifixion because as you know, you see a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross and his feet are one on top of the other and there's a nail through the two of them. There are three nails, right? Well, Joe Hohannon had it through the side of his heel bone. What they had obviously done was they nailed the side of his heel to the side of that upright cross beam. There were four nails most likely used in crucifixion. You will bruise his heel. Like that's an understatement of having a nail nailed through the side of your heel to fix you to the cross. I gotta tell you, that Saturday after the crucifixion, we know we know the crucifixion was on Friday, we call it Good Friday, but that Saturday, that had to be the saddest day in all of history. Because here was their conquering hero. They had this guy pegged accurately from all these prophecies that he's checked off all these boxes. The next box is your king is victorious and conquering. He's going to rule the world, baptized with fire, and then he's killed. The evening that Jesus was arrested, he told his followers, Take heart, for I have overcome the world. And yet, within just a matter of hours, the world overcame him. That Saturday, had to be the saddest day in all of history. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. The prophecies, they didn't come through the way that God said that it was going to happen. But we know the rest of the story. Sunday morning, the resurrection, and you will crush his head or he will crush your head. Indeed, the, head, the, the sin that entered the world brought on the penalty of the sin was death. The worst thing that could happen to us is death. On that resurrection Sunday, death was defeated. The curse of sin was broken. Yes, the bruise, the bruise on Je was on Jesus' heel, but the head of the serpent was crushed. It was the most victorious and glorious day. The Abrahamic covenant had come true. A blessing to the entire earth. Jesus' words to Nicodemus. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't have to suffer the penalty of sin. They won't have to experience death. They'll have eternal life. And that's available for the entire world. Isn't God cool? These guys were looking at little old tiny Rome who was persecuting the nation of Israel. And God's looking at the whole world for all of eternity. The disciples, they were slow to believe and they were even slower to understand. They finally believed that Jesus had risen from the dead because they saw him. But to understand and put it all into context, well, here's how it shakes out. Ch uh, uh, Book of Acts, chapter 1. He, this is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> okay, Jesus, um, you checked all these boxes. And then you died. But now that you're back to life, are you going to finish checking those boxes? Are you now going to take the throne in Israel and conquer Rome? And Jesus responds to them. He said, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, I'll bet they were, <laughs> behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come again the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Praise God, he's coming back, and he's coming on the clouds. Looking forward to that day, and that's why we keep talking about prophecy, because we, we have a great hope. We are really looking forward to the day that Jesus comes back to finish checking off that checklist, when he really does set up a government in this world. But what happened next? What happened after that, uh, that ascension? What happened next is what changed the world. Peter preaches a message on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The church is born on that day. You fast forward the story just a couple chapters. Stephen, one of the early leaders of the church, he's arrested. And he's condemned without a fair trial and he's stoned to death. He becomes the first martyr in church history. Acts chapter 11 verse 9. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And it was in Antioch... The disciples were first called Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. At this point, Christianity took off and it spread like wildfire. But with the spread of Christianity also came persecution. At first, the persecution was only coming from within the, the, the synagogue. Not the church, but the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders were persecuting the Christians. But as we have seen this very day, it is actually not too hard to divide people and pit them against each other. I did not know this. When I grew up as a kid, there used to be things called Pollock jokes. Like how many Pollocks does it take to screw in a light bulb and whatever the punchline was, it was really funny. Did you know that that was propagated by Hitler for an excuse to invade Poland? He had to divide people and he had to make out the Pollocks to be stupid and they had to make them the enemy so that he would have uh, moral authority and moral support to invade Poland, which kicked off World War II. We're seeing it today, the division that's among our leadership today, dividing people. This is exactly what happened in that first century. The, the religious leaders divided the Christians out, and it didn't take very long for that division and that persecution to spread. A.D. 64, Emperor Nero, the emperor of Rome, used to use Christians as human torches. He would light their bodies on fire for his garden parties. He would feed Christians to the lions for his gladiator games. He set, we believe, Nero set Rome on fire. He started a fire and then he blamed it on the Christians, which only ramped up the hatred for Christians all the more. And yet, every time something bad happened, the Christians persevered with grace, strength, and dignity. They loved one another. They loved their neighbors. When plagues came around, plagues in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, it was always the Christians that were on the front lines helping the sick and the infirm. Matter of fact, the plague of Cy Cyprian in the 3rd century, Dionysus wrote, Heedless of danger, Christians took care of the sick, attending to their every need. Finally, in 313 AD, the Edict of Milan was established. The Edict of Milan. This is when... Emperor Constantine, who, who was over the Western Empire, met with Licinius, who was over the Balkans in the East. They came together and they wrote a proclamation, no more persecution of Christians. 
Christians had done so much good within their communities, within their country, that it was no longer legal to persecute Christians. 67 years later, 380 AD, the Edict of Thessalonica made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, which turned out to actually be a terrible idea because it was a state-mandated religion and Christianity was all based on freedom. Nonetheless, it might have taken longer than the disciples had wanted it to, but the Roman Empire was conquered. Once and for all, the Roman Empire is no more, as, as we are well aware. But it was those Christians that went forth with boldness and with, without being afraid, just like Jesus said, don't be afraid of man. What, what, can, what can man do to you? He can kill you. Be afraid of God and live for God. And so it was the Christians that they changed their culture from within because of their following Jesus. Now, what does that have to do with where we are? What does that have to do with Ukraine? What does that have to do with Russia invading Ukraine that's been so heavy on my heart and so heavy on your heart? Well, it has everything to do with it because number one, God is indeed in control. God is in control. He has the plan. He has written it out for us. We know that there's some things that are going to happen. We're going to recognize them as they happen. It's just going to confirm that, man, God is awesome. He is exactly who he said he was. If he can do this, I can trust him with my life. If he can do this, I can trust him to forgive me of my sins and to give me everlasting life by placing my trust in Jesus Christ. Number two, God is greater than Satan. Satan and Putin have come up with this insidious plan to invade Ukraine and to take innocent life. Yet, while this plan is unfolding here on earth, God's eternal plan is unfolding in the realm all around us. Did you know that Ukraine has had a thriving church for the last couple of decades since they were set free from the Soviet Union? A thriving church, the Ukraine... Ukraine has sent forth more missionaries to the European Union than any other country on the planet. Now, the United States of America, we were, we were fashioned to be a city on a hill, and we have sent out missionaries to the entire globe. But here recently, it's Ukraine that has been sending their missionaries into the, Eastern, into the European Union. And there are missionaries from the United States right now that are in Ukraine. They saw the war coming. And they knew it was going to happen, and they chose to stay behind. And I know, even though I haven't heard an update from them recently since the war started, I know without a doubt that God's purposes are advancing in Ukraine right now. Matter of fact, there is a movement within Russia itself where Christianity is advancing. Churches are being planted in Russia and in Ukraine. So while Satan and Putin are focused on this little sliver of the world, God's purposes, God's purposes are, are far greater than anything that we could ever imagine. And finally, you want to defeat communism? Share the gospel. Better than that, live the gospel. Because that's how, that's how that Roman Empire was ultimately defeated, was by Christians living out their faith. Those plagues in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, it wasn't, it wasn't that Christians left tracks on the urinal in the restroom, it's that Christians got down on their hands and knees. They, they met the need exactly where they were. Christians were the people that everybody else wanted to be like. It was the Christians that were likable and the Christians that were sharing their faith. The good news that Jesus saves. The good news that God did send the prophesied one. The conquering hero who came not just to conquer this earth, but to conquer all of eternity. It was the Christians that made that difference. You see, the, the disciples, they were focused on the earthly kingdom. And yet Jesus was focused on that eternal kingdom 
Now tonight, it hasn't really felt like church, to tell you the truth. I haven't really taken a, a passage and broken it apart. It feels maybe a, a little bit more like a history lesson. But let me assure you that the very God of Genesis 3.15 is the very God of A.D. 33 on Resurrection Sunday, who is the same God when Nero was lighting people on fire. He's the same God of the Edict of Milan in 3.13. He's the same God of 1776. He's the same God in 1973 when I was, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and I had a purpose for you, Chuck. Whatever year you were born, God was there. He knows you. You were created on purpose, for purpose. He has a plan for your life. You are to influence them, and it's through that influence that evil will ultimately be conquered. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you that your plan is greater than our plan. Thank you that we can come to you in a free country for right now. We know that hard times are coming upon us, but Lord, we just trust you. We know that you have the ultimate plan, and we just give you our lives, and we ask you to shape us and mold us after your image so that we can be the image bearers of Jesus Christ and that we can change our world. We can change our schools, our families, our workplaces, that we can change even the GNCC race and nation, Lord, and let them know that there is a God who loves them and that your purposes are eternal. We want to be a part of that eternal kingdom and help change the landscape there. So be with us, Lord, and may we meet again in a week. In Jesus' name.